Welcome to Mosaic, a podcast about theology and theologizing in Singapore, Asia, and beyond. Brought to you by Singapore Bible College. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to our second episode of the podcast. We are very, very glad to have you here with us to join us in a second discussion that we'll be having. Now, in our first episode, we touched very briefly on the vision of this podcast and what we will be trying to do in the podcast going forward. But we felt uh, the need for a better and fuller explanation of that vision. So to start, uh, when someone's doing theology, it's normal to start with an introduction explaining what you're doing and how you're doing it. The term used to describe this is prolegomena, which in Greek literally means that which is said before. And for those who've read more academic theology or theology textbooks, it's the type of introduction that sometimes can be the most difficult, the most technical and boring. And personally, I have taught prolegomena a few times and I can attest that right when you start talking about what theology is and how you go about doing theology, your students' eyes immediately begin to glaze over and they just lose interest, right? So today's episode, unfortunately, or maybe fortunately, is a prolegomena episode. It may or may not be boring. Some of our discussions might actually be very interesting, could even get heated. But we thought that it was important enough to spend an episode talking about the what and the how basically what we will be doing in this podcast and how we'll be doing it. So today we have here myself, Justin, uh, Jackie, Jean, and Benita, who are here, our hosts, to discuss with us the first things of our of our podcast. So if you guys could, could say uh, hello. Hello, how are you guys doing? Hi. Hi. Hey. You just hear the thunder again. Yes. Oh, yeah, there's thunder in the background. Sorry. <laughs> no it's going to be our very sound effects for discussion <laughs> on theology. It'll make our discussions more. We feel the presence of God behind us yeah, in the, the, in the roaring of the thunder. Okay. Anyways, okay. So, so uh, as, as, we, as you all should know, we know that our, our podcast is a podcast that's about theology and theologizing in Singapore, Asia, and beyond. But what exactly is theology and what does it even mean to do theology or to theologize? Uh, some basic definitions of what theology is. Uh, some people have called it the study or the science even of God. Uh, God talk, thinking about God. And one thinker has even said, thinking God's thoughts after him. Uh, another definition uh, made famous by Anselm is faith seeking understanding. And so us as evangelicals, we believe that theology must begin with the Bible but that it includes also the person thinking. It must also be comprehensible and relevant for the church in whatever context that theology is being done or being expressed. Um, we, we're also aware that there are some people in the church who don't really like theology and view theology as being too abstract or too academic, generally unhelpful for the church. But we want to stress here that theology is embedded in all the church says and does, that we are all theologians in some sense, and that good theology ultimately is done in the service of the church. Okay. So, so um, what, what I want to ask you guys today to, uh, to explain, to describe is, um, given your disciplines, um, we all come from different theological disciplinary backgrounds, what exactly does it mean, what exactly is theology, and how does one do theology or theologize? How does your discipline affect uh, and inform the way that you answer questions like these and even the approach to, approaches that you have to theology? So uh, ask a question. Um, please feel free to answer. Yeah. Um, yeah, I am doing hermeneutics, and hermeneutics basically can be divided into two sections, general as well as special or um, divine hermeneutics. 
And when it comes to general hermeneutics, basically I study the history of interpretation. So any literary um, ideological groups who interpret their canonical texts in some way and to apply it to um, their new times, that would be considered a general um, hermeneutics. And theological, divine or special hermeneutics is particular to um, the Bible or um, as we call scripture. And it's about how um, the ecclesial as well as um, the Judaic Christian communities have used and understood earlier scriptures and applied them in a different time, in our own times. And um, my study is to study the practices historically, the development of them, as well as the methods and the methodological reflections on them. Um, so my interest is actually just to host conversations about how different groups use the Bible and how they understand God um, from there and how they um, seek to apply God's word in their lives. Basically, that's my discipline. So Jean, thank you for that um, really brief introduction. And I know from some of our earlier discussion, you mentioned um, even just how your discipline um, helps us in our modern day application of theologizing. There's a, there's a rich philosophical tradition actually of hermeneutics that really, um, a, a lot of times I think for myself, there's quite a lot of philosophy that I don't really even grasp fully, um, but you know, we, we use kind of the result of their philosophy to, in our practice of theologizing. But I think in your training, you um, delve into the depth of that. So maybe it would be great if you can explain how that works for us. Yeah, just briefly though. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, I think if I was to use just two key figures to um, draw that illustration of the two pictures, um, in modernity, we refer to Descartes or Kantian um, knowledge. And in that paradigm, the knower, that means the individual, has um, all the basis for all kinds of knowledge just from reason alone. I think, therefore, I am. And um, a lot of modern thought was based on uh, highly rationalistic and um, just by thought processes, um, inference, deduction, and all those um, logical processes that helps us to work out or induce or deduce principles from the Bible. But um, a more recent discovery has been, or, or rather a more recent recovery has been the notion that the human being is not just a thinking, walking brain, is a body, is a community, is a being that has um, experiences. And the second figure I'd use is Gadamer. And Gadamer's um, most famous concept is Bildung. And that has, um, is it an account or a description of the person as the person forms and grows. And because the person forms and grows through language and experiences, he then or she then has the language and experiences to understand other things in the world. So it is um, this shift from just, um, we're all just reasoning beings to a fuller account of we are also feeling, experiencing and maturing 
beings that has so uh, much enriched uh, modern conversations. So from the 1990s onwards, um, especially um, of American Britain tradition of biblical hermeneutics, um, Anthony Thistleton has been really helpful in giving an account of the reader or um, the interpreter and biblical interpretation. Um, so the interpretive process of the Bible no longer just considers the text and the history, but now it seeks to describe the reader and the reader context. Oh, I'm not talking about how the reader might read something alien into the text of scripture, that's asegesis. But what I'm talking and what Thistleton is referring to is what the reader in his bildung brings with him in terms of his growth and languages and experiences, the resources of human understanding to connect with and to um, be true to the subject matter in scripture, all while remaining faithful to the wording of the Bible. So um, there's a growing recognition that interpretation is not just applying one right method um, to every single text, but rather an interpreter becomes a better interpreter when he grows and he matures um, in his character, in his attitudes, and in his breadth and depth of experiences, when he diligently studies the word of God, examining a variety of approaches um, so that he has a deeper understanding of God and humanity um, to be responsive to how God is working in our own time, in our own lives. That's really important. And there's also um, awareness um, that serious-minded theologizing are, um, is being done outside of traditional centers of Christian beliefs as well, but that you know Christianity exists as a global movement. So there is a greater willingness um, for not only um, one side, one center to listen to another center, but for mutual listening out to each other to understand how theological reflections can be done rigorously and responsively to changing times and needs mm -hmm. of both the mission field as well as our congregation. So these are very exciting times. So, so it seems that you're saying that uh, a more uh, broader perspectives and horizons of more community approaches to reading the Bible yeah. help to improve how we read the Bible and do theology. Yeah, it's a more collaborative rather than an individual or just an isolated being. But we're all um, working out our understanding together. And, and so it also sounds like then one's perspective isn't a limitation, but is something good that one brings and that we can grow by mutually helping each other out in, in learning and growing in the sense that the building is used, as you mentioned from. Yeah. Yes, definitely. Our perspectives are so unique because we live in different times and places. We bring our um, perceptions and our understanding because of the different things that we go through to the table and we present it to each other. So that's a beautiful picture, how we can collaborate. That's Very cool. great. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks, Jean. Yeah, I feel like I just got to know Gadamer so much better. And you, for those of you who don't know, Gadamer is this philosopher that like half the people in doctoral study have to read, and like most of people don't understand. So I really appreciate um, you making it so simple for us.
All right. So, uh, yeah. So, uh, how, uh, Benita, would you like to, to share about your, your own background and your approach to theology that comes from your background? Yeah, sure. Yeah. So I think like, you know, what Jean has been sharing really resonates with me because I think for liturgical theology, it had this whole discipline has come up in the past 50 years, maybe because, um, of this whole, you know, engagement in, in the fusion of horizons of understanding, right. The code, the Kadama again. And when, could you, could when, you explain a little bit what liturgical theology is for this? Yeah, so I'm, I'm about to do that. Yeah, um, yeah, so because when you practice the liturgy, right? So we say what takes place in in church, um, you know, whether it's consciously or unconsciously crafted around word and sacrament, or, you know, it could be things like the litur- liturgy of the hours that you practice uh, following a church calendar um, that kind of reminds us. Um, how us as Christians live both, you know, in Christian time, in God's time and, and in this world, right? We straddle these two spaces. Um, liturgical theology is trying to look at, hey, you know, okay, we are practicing all these practices and then uh, what does this say about our theology? Um, but there, there isn't really an agreement on what liturgical theology really is. So, which is a happy problem, I feel, because it doesn't make, you know, things so clear cut, right? Where does theology come first or does practice come first? <laughs> so, you know, like Dwight Vogel will use like geographical terms to describe liturgical theology as a landscape which features prominent provinces. So such as theology of worship, liturgy as theology, theology of liturgy, theology in liturgy, theology because liturgy and liturgy in life. Yeah, so it's it's all encompassed, um, and I think there are contemporary scholars would try to would hesitate to to kind of privilege one over the other, even though they are uh, the the starting point of of liturgical theology arose because there were um, uh, people from uh, particular traditions like uh, Russian Orthodox Alexander Shmerman. Um, and a Roman Catholic, Aidan Kavanagh, uh, both are no longer with us. Um, they, they wanted to kind of reclaim what their tradition was talking about for liturgy. So practice came before uh, theology. Um, but uh, I think I would say personally that, you know, if I were to draw upon St. Elmsom's um, definition of theology as faith-seeking understanding, I would say liturgical theology can perhaps be described as this ongoing conversation that seeks to understand and engage faith as being expressed by Christians while carrying out their liturgies, whether that's as an individual or community, whether traditional and non-traditional. So that would be my brief <laughs> explanation of what that is. So, so going back to what Jean was saying, it, it sounds like in your discipline as well, there's a sense of like retrieval or rediscovery that's sort of taking place, maybe even reinterpretation. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, what, what is what is it? Yeah. So, I mean, what do you think about that? Yeah. So maybe I'll just use like a, a simple example to, to to illustrate how, you know, liturgical theology works itself out. For example, the Holy Commun- Communion, right? So in, in Singapore, uh, Holy Communion Sundays are known to be the most well-attended Sunday service, right? And this is pre-COVID limitations. Uh, so so the question that liturgical theology will, will pose to this uh, phenomenon is that why is there a special meaning, right? That we ascribe to the Holy Communion, um, you know, uh, and, and is that special meaning the same for congregation members um, throughout or 
you know, the, why has the church given them this impression that it is special? Or how, how did they come to, to, to ascribe this meaning to that? Yeah, and then if Holy Communion was distributed every week, right, as John Calvin would have loved to have that, uh, would this be an increase in attendance throughout? You know, if yes, why aren't churches doing it if attendance is important? You know, what does this say about Holy Communion? Of course, there are many questions we can continue to ask. Um, so, so basically, you know, then we, we, we move into things like, okay, this ritual action uh, has, um, you know, what's the traditional development behind it? What in history, in, in social movements even, right, um, has, has caused, has, or has contributed to this? Uh, and then what does the Bible have to say about this in response? And so, yeah, you know, looking at how historical studies, mission studies, intercultural studies all come together uh, to help to explain these phenomena and hopefully move us towards you know, knowing the differences um, uh, between, uh, sorry, backtrack a bit. Yeah, so move us towards uh, being able to discern, I guess, yeah, why why these are arising, uh, why these things are happening, and then to approach it, um, you know, with, with, with careful biblical uh, and scriptural um, responses, yeah. So it seems that theology in this sense is uh, sort of already embedded in the structures and the practices that are there. And it's to better understand these things and then to better maybe even reinterpret them where we're necessary. If, 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 am, I, am I right in thinking this? Mm, yeah, I think you got it. Oh dear. <laughs> Sorry, I think we are lagging a little. Is that right? Yeah, we are fine. definitely frozen a little okay. bit. I think Justin has, has mm. frozen. Well, I, I hear all you guys fine. So I might What's be outputting. Video, I, think? I might be outputting lag, but I can hear everything. So it's recording everything. Mm. Yeah, I see I see a sign that says my internet connection isn't stable. Sorry, we're gonna have to edit okay, this okay. out, but it's okay. Good. Sure. But uh I I've, I heard everything, so I, it did it didn't skip. The good thing was that I wasn't talking, so yeah. Mm. Yeah. Okay. All right, so should we move on then? Okay. Uh so um, yeah, so uh, so Jackie, um, you've been you've been waiting patiently. Uh, could you please share us with us a little bit about your own area of work and how that affects your understanding and approaches to theology? Sure, and then I'm patient for a reason because um, I think it's important for Jane and Benita to lay out some of the ideas of how to approach theology um, in more of a Christian context. Because my discipline, um, even though it's called world world Christianity, in, in a sense, we um, come from more of a tradition from mission or missiology. And so as with it is with the missionary task, the job is not to explain God to Christians, but the job is to explain God to people who are not Christians. And so the the, the encounter there is a little bit different, but it's, we still draw upon these um, traditions um, that we have um, that Jean has so elo eloquently described for us um, and, and Benita expanded more um, too. So I, I'm just thinking in terms of theologizing, um, a lot of the times for missionary, the task is to translate God. Like how do we make God know across culture, across language? Um, 
And I, I know we threw out a lot of names for, for our audience just earlier. So I'm going to continue the tradition and throw out more names. And if they don't make any sense, <laughs> you can ask us um, next time, perhaps. <laughs> but one of the names that I want to throw out, he's um, kind of a key figure in world Christianity, and that's Lamy Sane. Lamy Sane wrote a book called Translating the Message. And his argument is that the Christian Bible is and always has been a book written to be translated, even in its original Greek um, New Testament, because as we know, Jesus and his contemporary probably spoke Aramaic, but then somehow the Bible was written in Greek to be propagated uh, more broadly in the Greco-Roman world. And so um, Sane continues this argument about how the Bible becomes a, a message in translation. And that's really what missionaries do a lot. So maybe if I were to understand theology from more of a mission context, um, what we, we have a lot of times have to have do is to explain what term we're going to use to represent God. So this is the term question, as some people would know it. Um, what is the term that we use for God? What is the concept of God? Do we draw from existing cultural ideas of an, an indigenized God, or do we come up with a new concept? And, and how much do we keep of what's already there? And how much do we bring in and transform what's already there. And maybe if I could just really briefly um, in two instances in Asia, um, in China, um, Matteo Ricci missionary, um, Jesuit missionary from Catholic tradition, and then James Lake from a um, Protestant tradition. They were trying to figure out how to translate the name of God in Chinese. Um, and so there's this confusion term, Sang Di, and then there's this more generic title, Shen. And then and this debate um, um, continued for a long time. And, and today, if you read the Chinese Bible, you actually have a Shangdi version and a Shen version. And, and both of them are um, in existence. So, so, so there is this idea of how do we translate God? And, and in Korean culture, in, in the Kore Korean Christianity, there is then this, um, that's my second case study, this influence by the missionaries in China. And so in Korea, there is um, the debate with an indigenous name, Hananam, and then, just to correct, yeah, 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 just, just yeah. to maybe Hananim, you should say Hananim, this part, yeah. Hananim yeah. and Shin, right, which is a Shin title. And, and what's really interesting in Korea is that there's one um, missionary named Horace Underwood, and he was actually not very convinced with the use of Hananim as God's name. And then he went out and he surveyed a bunch of people. So he was trying to get kind of the, uh, what's what's the feel on the ground? What what do people really think about this name of God? And almost a little bit of this um, Gottermer kind of idea of growing in in his understanding. Um, and and what he came up with, even though he was not a, for the name of Hananim, he realized that that's the name that people prefer. Mm -hmm. And so in Korea, that debate actually was settled quite quickly because of this ground level survey. And, um, and, and some people have argued that because of this adaptation of a name that's quite indigenous in the Korean culture, that that might have attributed to the rapid growth of Korean Christianity. So, 
So in in um, mission missions or in world Christianity, the the exercise of theologizing has definitely a really um, strong tradition rooted in engaging local culture and hearing to hearing the voices of the people. And so I think for me, um, from that tradition or from that discipline, um, I see theologizing really um, from a ground level up. Um, and, and I'm excited about that. I think it is important to see, to bridge that gap um, mm-hmm. between kind of a dull theological categories that you know, we we sometimes suffer through when we were master students and, and when we teach now Justin teaches the students hey. and maybe they Justin's probably not boring, but maybe the books they read, they feel like it's not relevant. <laughs> I try not to be, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Justin makes it relevant. But but I think it's important that we learn how to bridge that gap as mm. theologians and as practitioners um, in theology. So one thing I know about you is that your research now involves um, ethnography, involves study of congregations and people on the ground. How does that play into the the idea of doing theology or even what theology is, uh, whether generally or even in your own work? Yeah, thanks for that question, Justin. So ethnography, for those of you who are not familiar with that term, Ethnography is actually a method um, derived from anthropology and kind of the relationship between anthropology and mission, it goes quite back, way back. Um, And at different times, um, anthropology and and mission really kind of sometimes we're good friends, sometimes (laughs) we're not so good friends. But um, but but anyways, the ethnography is really, in a sense, um, kind of a ground level survey kind of research method. So for my work, I talk to a lot of people trying to understand um, what they think. Um, This includes pastors or lay Christians. Um, I'm trying really hard to get some like non-Christians to talk to me. So with my fingers crossed, hopefully I'll get to talk to some. Um, But but sometimes there's a a richness in that um, we see how God is at work in people's lives. And God, I, I really believe that, you know, God is um, working, actively working in history as well as in lives of people. And the word of God is alive and active. And so we, we need to believe, um, we need to take that um, understanding and say, well, when we talk to people, maybe there is something that we need to listen to in how they mm-hmm. experience God, how they know God. And so my um, my my conversations with people, some a lot of times I'm just learning things and I'm encouraged by their testimonies, I'm encouraged by their um, struggles to understand who God is as well. And, and so these um, these conversation becomes a rich, um, if you will, oral text for me to do my research. Yeah, a, a primary theology, theological material of sorts, right? Of sorts, yeah. Of sorts, yeah. Uh, it, it sounds like there's, a, there's a, a good amount of overlap with the kind of work that Benita is interested in, where there seems to be a, an emphasis on this ground level theologizing or understanding the stories and the practices that sort of make up belief. Uh, do you guys have any thoughts or comments on that? Yeah, like for liturgical theology, one of the things that, uh, you know, basically that I mentioned just now that came up, why why this whole discipline has, is, is brewing, right? It's because um, people are noticing that 
how people practice, um, you know, like in their prayers, in their approaches to, to the rituals. Um, they do not so much as to apply, start applying um, secondary theology, right? Why am I doing this? What does this actually mean in a broader theological scheme and script, scripture? I mean, there, there are those bits there, but it doesn't get as thick, right? As, you know, uh, in, in its meaning, right? As like uh, on exhaust the entire meaning of that ritual. And I think... Um, people are, are saying that, hey, you know, there's, there's something in there, you know, why are people, uh, are, you know, still having, uh, how do I put this, like, uh, let's say, okay, let, let me just give an illustration, it's, it's easier, it's very practical stuff, right, um, you know, so in, in my uh, church ministry, um, in, I, there was this um, um, lady who, who, you know, insisted or the way she she approached the elements was very clearly uh, in a way that was uh, almost like a uh, magical, uh, you know, approach, right? Um, you know, she it, it didn't matter that her, her son that she brought along the church um, was probably not a believer, but she insisted that he he partake of of the communion elements, yeah. So um, you know, it's, it's this whole question about like how you know we are repeatedly telling them, you know, the the um, the reasons, the meanings of of communion every time we partake of it, but there is still something in them that that uh, that they bring to the table, literally. And so like, I really resonate with what um, Jackie was saying, you know, that, you know, when we actually look at people on the ground, what they are thinking, what they have come, you know, they have believed in the past, right? What resonates with them? Um, um, these are still boiling and brewing there, but but very rarely do we actually uh, address them and, and, you know, hear from them why, and then uh, see how... Our, our faith can respond to that and help them engage those senses. This actually reminds me of a story that a student of mine uh, told in class this semester where uh, her mother became a Christian from a traditional Chinese uh, religious perspective and um, would chant the, the Bible as she read it in a, in a way that sort of um, mimicked the way that, um, you know, a chanting type prayers would, would take place in, in, in these kinds of worship services. So, uh, it is it's quite interesting. It's, it's very interesting, Benita. Yeah. Okay. Well, for the sake of time, uh, let's move on to our, our next topic. So we've been talking a bit about various, um, you know, approaches to theology that, that come about by our disciplines. Um, but in terms of context, right, we, we are all here in Singapore, in Asia. Um, and, you know, our, our podcast is one that's trying to look a bit more at what theology and theologizing looks like in the Asian continent generally. So, so maybe a question that I want to ask you guys, and you can feel free to answer however you want, is what does theology in Asia look like? What does even doing theology in Asia look like? And to maybe add a little bit of fuel to the, uh, uh, to the fire, can we even talk about, say, Asian theology in this kind of way? And if so, why might that be an issue? I know I've talked about that this in the last podcast just briefly, but uh, what are your thoughts on this topic? Um, well, we just had this conversation about Asian theology and the biblical studies seminar that I attended. 
and some of the categories were really helpful. Um, so it seems as if the term Asian theology so far as it has been used, has been used to label different kinds of theological work that is done in different national, geographical or ethnically distinct communities. That is not the traditional um, Christian center. So um, the, the argument in such discourses is, um, proceeds usually as we're not that. So we have to be recognized for our not thatness to distinguish itself from the supposedly unmarked discourses of, um, and um, I use this term most um, technically, Western discourses that, that traditionally make up the centers of Christian civilizations. So there's this drive to label ourselves as in terms of our identity and our politics and our situations is something that is different from um, what the West um, or them and their identity and their geography are interested in. There's both pros and cons, I think. I think that there is something that um, we bring to the table that in our struggles and our relationship with God and with one another, um, there is that need to articulate, to give voice to um, understand what um, Asian um, theology uh, is doing. But I find that there is an inherent contradiction because you're saying that you want to do something different, but you're still using the categories of Western um, theology. So, um, I think that to progress beyond that, um, it's just to develop a distinctive identity that is constructive, um, that can bring something to the rest of the world. Um, I have seen it used in South Asia and in areas in Southeast Asia, Asian theology, as well as in America. But each time you probe a little bit lower than the label, you find that it's actually a whole lot more specific than that. So for example, it uses Asian theology, but really it's just um, a smaller community. So one of the struggles that, that we have had in our podcast discussion is, oh dear, are we, are we really going to be representative enough of all the concerns? Can we actually speak for like Asian? And what is Asian-ness? So those are really big concerns we struggle with. So um, I think that um, we want to explore the opportunities to, to try to articulate for ourselves our own understanding and have that room to think about um, the real struggles that we have in our communities and in the places and times that we're put in. Um, so definitely that is a very strong um, Term, but at the same time, we don't want to um, say that there's no complexity in the issue. So, the complexities of um, why should it be a white versus like non-white? Um, why should it be a colored debate? I mean, coloring is a category that is not um, shared. For example, um, so yeah, not to downplay all the complexities of the politics and 
um, the rights involved. Um, I, I am more the personally, I am of the opinion to um, build more constructive bridges as to just be able to um, bring something distinctive so that it doesn't have to be, I'm not that, but confidently saying I am this and that this thing is something that um, would be enriching to others as well. Now that's my two cents worth. That's really interesting, um, Jane. I, the, your term, your, your, your desire for a constructive theology. I, I'm just curious um, what, if you could give us an example of what a constructive theology would look like. Um, I think that the article um, called Multiracial Biblical Studies by Park, and that's published in 2020, is um, well-written and very um, toned down piece of um, paper amongst all the papers in this genre. Um, and what I've just read actually just picks up from what he identifies for himself, that when he talks about non-white discourse, he inevitably plays into white categories. So he doesn't have a vocabulary of his own, but he has to use the vocabulary of whiteness and say, I'm not like that. So in that way, um, we still don't know who he is. We just know him by negations. So um, my question would be, um, is there a way in which we could talk about then therefore what is? I know that there is a necessary process and that this may be a necessary process. Um, and definitely the struggles involve um, just, it may include protest, it may include rejection, it may include uh, diagnosing what is wrong. And these are all uh, parts of that process. Um, but I really enjoy Park's um, civil, tone of civility, because he says that um, he wishes to bring across the concerns without alienating those he hopes to work with. So um, I thought that was a really good response from Park. Thanks, Jing. I Well, you just, sorry, I'm kind of continuing with this conversation because this is <laughs> really close to um, something that's close to my interest too. Mm. Um, I'm just thinking of from what you were saying just reminded me of an article, um, actually it's a chapter in a book Mm. Um, written by Andrew Walls, who's um, another big name, big big name missiologist, kind of the founder of my field, along with um, um, Lamy Sane, who I mentioned earlier. But mm. Andrew Walls has this um, chapter in his book, um, The Missionary Movement in Christian History. The chapter is titled The Gospel as Prisoner and Liberator of Culture. And in it, he has this idea of how um, first, he, he traces kind of the historical development of Christianity. And he says, you know, like mm -hmm. you look at first century Christianity, they're mostly just Jews, you know, a, a strong link to Judaism. 
um, in first century Christians. And if you think about the 12 disciples, you're like, oh yeah, probably that's, that makes sense. You know, um, even though definitely you have a lot of Greeks who joined the church um, in, in um, first century, a lot of what um, Paul's missionary journeys was, was about, right? But then there was still a strong link to Judaism. But if you look at fourth century, there's like, ah, uh, they're not Jews. They're mostly concerned with Greek philosophy. Mm-hmm. And in seventh century, um, Irish monasticism, it's like looks completely different. And then you look at 19th century um, English activism or 20th century Nigerian, you know, Pentecostalism. Um, and so so he 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 brings these pictures of like over historical periods, kind of like the dominant um, Christian look, if you will, the dominant Christian face. And he says, you know, it's really interesting because if you look at it, you will see that historically we do have this tension of what he calls the indigenizing principle, Mm -hmm. kind of like a local feel, but also a pilgrim principle, which is more of a universal um, feel to the faith. Because we can't say that, you know, the first century Christians and the 20th century Christians are different. We we still are Christians. We all come mm. under the same umbrella of Christianity. But if you look at the way they practice liturgy, they the way they understand um, their faith, the way they approach Bible, how they read the Bible, it's very different. And so it's really interesting what you're mentioning. It's almost like we should have these local indigenized principle, like what Andrew Walls we use the term but then we should have these universal pilgrim principle that unite us together. And so I get, I think in our investigation of, you know, whether it's theology from Singapore, broader Asia, or even beyond, I, I think some of us um, have, um, like I have hybrid um, identity from, you know, the US and Taiwan and Singapore now, um, that we're trying to understand Christianity, not just in one location, but I think, in, in really in a globalized world, we need to think about how we um, universalize our faith. Yeah, and, and if I could just jump in here, I actually didn't get to share in the last question just to, to move things on. But, um, you know, my, my background as a historical theologian is that I'm interested in questions of how did things that we take for granted in our faith come to be? What were the processes? What were the cultures? What was going on in those times that sort of led to the formation of doctrine? And I think that uh, one thing that's important in thinking about theology in, in various Asian contexts, because they're not all the same, is that Asian theology is basically what are Asian Christians thinking about? What are the struggles they're facing and how are they responding theologically to the kinds of issues that they're facing? How are they responding in their own context, in language, in words, in actions that reflect what that context is in? And so for me, one interest that has sort of grown since I've, I've come to Singapore is trying to better understand in, in, in sort of line with what Benita studies, uh, with Jackie studies, and some degree Jean, is to understand what kinds of theologies are already sort of taking place or have taken place on the ground that maybe are not as well exposed or understood. Uh, what kinds of things have taken place in the past that have led to certain beliefs and practices in churches that we basically take for granted? So I think that when I think about this issue of Asian theology, it involves, in some sense, expanding the idea of the tradition of the church to more than just the basic classics of historical theology like Augustine and Aquinas, Calvin, and so forth, but to include local traditions as part of our own individual uh, traditions in our own churches, in our own locations, 
and, and understanding better than how those kinds of theological movements have shaped and formed our own theologies or, or our own perceptions of God or, or the stories that we tell of who God is and how God is working in the world. So, uh, yeah, I mean, that's, that's sort of my approach to this. Why we even need to do Asian theology is to tackle these challenges and to even discuss more of, of, of Asian historical theology, so to speak. So one of my um, passions, I think, increasingly is there is no such category, a discipline called Asian historical theology, but can we make uh, such a category? It's something that I'm trying to argue in my in my uh, in my article. So I'm giving you a little preview. So I mean, if any of you guys have any any, any comments or responses to that, <laughs> well, um, I think I'm just going to jump in and then um, throw in a question. So it's wonderful that Gadamel's fuller account of the human being allows us to recover that our understanding and our beliefs are part of. Um, our bodies, our rituals, our experiences, which is fantastic. So the traditional question will be, is everything on the ground of God? <laughs> so like the person who thinks of the sacrament as magic. Um, and of course, uh, I'm not saying that that is, um, this person is not genuine hearted and does not have a true meaning. I'm saying that I don't know. Um, but at the same time, church history and Justin, you might have to inform us, did have a very big fight over iconoclasms and rituals. And so, and of course, Benita would know that too, because that's part of liturgical history. And the Eucharist was more the central um, liturgical practice that was contested during the um, Catholic Protestant um, argument. So um, is there like a way to discriminate or discern or not that's that's a that's a tough question to answer well my, my my first counter response would be is everything in the academy and the seminary of god as well right i think we have to um, sometimes question as well um, what we assume to be the the good parts of theology because there have been lots of things in the theological academy that in some ways maybe has harmed the church in some way or maybe has uh, done away with, uh, or maybe moved away from the glory of God, so to speak. And I think we can go on and on about this, but we're not going to. Um, I think that you're right in, in in asking this question, because if we focus a bit too much on the ground, it becomes easy to assume that everything taking place is good and everything is of God. But I think that, um, you know, we we have to have a critical eye to these things. And this is why understanding the past, understanding tradition, and keeping ourselves aligned with both scripture and you know, the church previous to us, the tradition of the church are significant things where testing, ob observing um, are practices that need to be done. But the issue first, I think, even before we get to that question is, are we even aware of the processes that have taken place? Are we aware of the potential syncretizations that have taken place in maybe potentially unbiblical and not good theological ways? And then are we able to then critique them well in that sense? So I think that having the standard of scripture and tradition are things we have to always be in conversation with. But, um, but yeah, to, to, to have that um, kind of self-critical process as part of this idea of thinking theologically. Yeah. That's fantastic. I keep imagining Justin in um, the character of Luther because Luther is a professor and he is an intellectual. He is from the academic, but he has, very strong language. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so that's really yes. fun. 
Yeah. I think the fun part uh, that I've discovered in liturgical theology is that actually the questions that we are asking, at least from our, you know, the ones that I've mentioned, uh, are also things that, say, Ignatius of Antioch, right? First century Christians were also, you know, had similar approaches. Um, they also have, you know, things like, you know, what's a life-giving cup, you know, it's medicine of immortality. Um, yeah, and and it's, I find that perhaps before this whole scholastic movement came about, right, the questions that and, and uh, sentiments that they had towards, um, uh, say, the understanding of the Eucharist, again, was actually may provide good answers for us today. Yep. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah, I know the historian is nodding his head. So, no, so, so one thing that <laughs> yeah. I've been encouraged to do is to try mm. not to give up my historical roots mm. and to try to do more retrievals of like patristic theology and, and earlier stuff mm. in, say, Asian context. So, yeah, uh, con continue, please. Yeah. Yeah. No, because we are in a very interesting uh, tension, right, between, you know, a very like rather Western uh, approach to looking at theology and then our own like Eastern sensibilities I think Singapore, in Singapore, we feel it a lot more, uh, but perhaps, you know, in other parts of Asia, there may be a, more, a lot more on the, um, you know, they are, where, where they are coming from and then trying to figure out, okay, what are all these um, influences in Christianity today, contemporary Christianity, as we have it, right, coming in and how do we wrestle through this and giving um, the, le the lesser known voices a lot more say, and I think but just by using English, right, we are already <laughs> co-opting, so to speak. Okay, we are doing it the, the Western way. <laughs> we can't run from that. And uh, I find like post-colonial studies a bit helpful in giving me terms like, say, mimicry, right, using the methods of, you know, the, uh, the, the, colonial, <laughs> the colonial masters um, to, to speak to what they are doing. But um, yeah, just... I. Uh, um, highlighting a, a, a new area of study called decolonial studies that I find that has a much more tempered view of, of what does it mean to, you know, uh, look at what, who we are, right? Uh, as people trying to come up uh, with theologies from the ground, understanding where we are at, and then approaching, you know, um, uh, theology from, from the other in that sense. Uh, yeah, I think they are trying to do it in a much more balanced way than and you know the extremities that post-colonial studies uh, are not very well known for. I yeah, mean, yeah. So infamous so for yeah. So yeah, not anti-Western, but post-Western centric, right? Something kind of mm, like that. Mm. Well, okay, that's a term for that. There you go. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Post-post-Occidental, right? In, in, yeah. To, yeah. Yeah. That that's that's really helpful because I think these terms like post-colonial, decolonial. Um, I mean, some sometimes they're they're confusing. So I appreciate Justin what you just did in in terms of explaining um, the difference between the two. Okay. Well, um, for for the last question that we can um, talk about, uh, we've talked a little bit about how our 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 disciplines affect our approaches to theology. We've talked a bit about how maybe a generally Asian context uh, affects theology. But uh, for you personally, um, how does who you are and your own experiences then affect and shape these kinds of approaches. Uh, what about maybe your own background, where you're from? What, what kinds of ways do these shape your own personal uh, approaches to theology? So uh, yeah, if anyone likes to, would like to share first. 
Yeah, I'll go ahead and talk about that because um, in in my research, I had to actually go through that exercise um, quite in depth because as as we interview people, there's always a bias that we bring into um, conversation, and so. For me, it's really important to understand my own background and how that shaped me and then that how that shapes my conversation with people that um, I'm talking with. And, and I think maybe one of the things that really have shaped um, my research from, from my experience is this migration, this experience of migration. So I mentioned that I was born in Taiwan and then when I was a child, about 11, 12 year of age, um, my family moved to the U.S. And so I grew up kind of um, like um, like a foreigner. Um, but, you know, it, it, eventually I, I tried to assimilate and I tried to integrate into American society. And then um, just when I thought I was about done with that task, um, you know, as an adult, uh, we came to Singapore. <laughs> and, and so um you know, here I am coming back to Asia and you would think it's really obvious why you just come back to Asia. Singapore is like the best place for me because I can speak English and I can speak Mandarin. And you would think it's just really natural, you know, fit into a culture that um, or a, a country that has English, Chinese, Malay and Tamil. And I don't speak Tamil and Malay, but, you know, at least have two of the four languages. But but still, there was um, quite a bit of culture shock. Um, delayed a little bit, but, but still at different times. And to this day, I still have questions about um, Singlish that Benita sometimes helps me with, or, you know, and, and other of my Singaporean friends help me. But, but I think these migration experience and just this like sense of unsettledness really has helped me to want to investigate um, the experiences of people who are in migration and how that shapes their theology. Um, so one of my first um, times of doing this kind of ground level um, study was with um, people who minister to um, domestic workers um, who are migrants themselves. And then um, now I'm also do, I'm doing um, my research with um, students who are foreign students coming to Singapore to study. And so these experiences of my immigration has really shaped and, and, and in a sense, um, move me toward um, perhaps a place of empathy toward those who are um, in migration. And, and, and I, th I think that's exciting um, to see how God uses our experiences to, to move us in research and theologizing. I know, Jean, you're also interested in doing migration kind of theology, right? Um, well, um, okay, there is one interesting aspect of me that connects me very much to my Singaporean perception. Um, and that is I did creative writing with um, a professor in NUS and he's a pretty known uh, poet in Singapore. And he wrote um, in the age whereby nationalism was part of the process and um so without giving too much away about the dates and my age um i have always been surrounded um by a group of creative uh, intellectuals in singapore who are very very concerned about 
um, what this Singaporean identity is. And perhaps, um, uh, and they have contributed to society. So, but of course, these are out of fashion because anyone who's elite or um, educated might be considered as like, oh, you know, it's not from ground up. So I'm going to be the um, opposite voice and say that um, I have known of intellectuals who have contributed to um, their picture of what Singapore is and they, because of their positions have been formative. So um, one of the poems that is so um, famous would be Ulysses. And um, yeah, and that is a picture of migration and it's a picture of how um, it's in the poem, the ship is sailing across different countries. And as it sails across different ports, um, it mirrors the journey that the migrant goes through. And um, the different ports are described with the symbols of the mythology of that culture. So um, the Nagas and the dragons. And, and it was a very exciting mythological picture of um, the worlds that one traverses when one passes from one um, world, upbringing, culture, background, understanding, and entering another world, like entering another myth, mythopic or fantastical world. So that has always been um, a very powerful poem that describes this um, um, journey that the migrant takes. And in that journeying, there's no one identity, but that the journeyer imbibes identities along the way. And I would say that that is also my identity because I have imbibed not only my Chinese migrant background, but I went to school with Malays and Indians and they are my close neighbors. Um, I am, yeah, my next door neighbor is a Malay Machi and I'm considered their adopted daughter because I go over and help for um, festivals and meals and things like that. And I love the people that I've been placed into, um, the groups of people that I've been placed with. Um, to negotiate these relationships today um, in a peaceful Singapore is such a wonderful um, blessing because the state of living together is not a reality for many parts of the world. So I try to um, foster that sense of a common humanity, despite the um, practices that may be different. So I, it is not a flattening or washing out of all distinctives. Um, when I go over to my Malay family, I will adapt adopt Malay practices and Malay language. Um, it did not make my Malay side into something that is a flattened Singaporeanness, but I have become also part Malay in that process. So um, I think that's just a picture of um, the image of the pilgrimer um, and growing in the many experiences 
and practices and the peoples that have been given to love. Yeah, I think I resonate with Jean for, you know, most part of growing up in a multicultural society. And I think for myself, I've always found myself in uh, very interesting um, spaces, like, uh, I guess, like always being in some sort of a liminal space in terms of what is expected of me, uh, but yet me not liking <laughs> to conform to, uh, you know, what is expected of me, right, in terms of, um, you know, being a bit of a rebel, you know, going to, a, a, um, you know, instead of going down the whole, like, you know, elite school track, right, I'm always kind of elite, but not elite, uh, you know, encountering people from all walks of life. Um, and then in my own family, me being, you know, one side of my family is super, not super, but a number, few generations of Christians. And then the other side, right, my dad is the first Christian in his entire family. So I'm always like straddling on Saturdays, going to, you know, my grandma's place that has altars set up, incense smells, right? Um, and, and then on Sunday, I'm in a, you know, nice, clean uh, a church wearing my Sunday best. So every weekend is always this, this two, you know, very different worlds that I'm, 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 I find myself in. And, and I don't have much answers as to how I can talk to the non-Christian side of, of my family. And then, you know, while in pastoring, also seeing how Chinese religions, right, people who are Chinese, converts from Chinese religions, carry so much of that sentiment um, in doing their, their worshipping, uh, their practices, even their thoughts, right? Um, and then also then, you know, thinking about my own maternal side, uh, paternal side of the family that, that is from Chinese religion's background. Um, their own struggles with, with Christianity, right? And, and what it's all about. Uh, and, and the things that they have spoken about, you know, um, their weird worries and fears that, that cannot just be addressed with a rational, logical response. I think, I think finding, um, I think these are the questions and experiences that have, uh, that I carry along in, in, my, in my own study. Um, and I think that's where I'm very interested in seeing, you know, when I see how lit liturgy, right, um, brings people into this, this space of ritual practice that, that they, you know, uh, that they get the, some, some sort of space, right, to play. Again, quoting <laughs> holy play, right? Karama again, um, but not in a, a contextual sense, right? Where they are, what they are practicing has a context that has arisen, that was, that there. <laughs> has a context that, that it arose out from. Uh, and then yet they also come with, with their own context. And then so many things happen in that space. Uh, and so I think for me, um, you know, theology is, is scripture plus reasoning plus experience you know I think Jackie mentioned the, the quadrant before um, and I think that's where um, I, I see a lot of it you know coming through in liturgy which is also you know our the church's public display of faith right so how people are looking in from the outside uh, what we do 
as a church is most publicly seen. So I think this is, uh, and I mean, of course, with the pandemic, slightly different now, but uh, yeah, I think these were the questions and, and background that I, I had coming into this research question. Thanks, Benita. Yeah. Thanks, yeah. Uh, for me, uh, my, my, I guess my background growing up is, is somewhat similar to Jackie in some ways, but also quite a bit different as well. Uh, Korean American, born and raised in the States, so a uh, pure second generation. Uh, growing up in the era where, uh, you know, color blindness, race blindness is, is sort of a thing. Um, for, for me, I didn't grow up in a very like white dominant um, town or um, context. It was quite diverse, actually. So I never really had to worry about people making fun of me because I was Asian and I was quite thankful for that. But at the same time, there's still this sort of ingrained sense of uh, not wanting to be who you are and, and find and wanting belonging. The, the idea of the perpetual foreigner syndrome that many um, Asian Americans and other immigrants to places like America feel. And, and, and I think that one way that that manifests then is that church becomes a very safe space to sort of play as, as Benita says, so to speak, right? Where, um, you know, one thing I realized was how um, you know, someone like me, um, it's it's the experience of being a majority, majority culture, majority people is something that we just don't have uh, ever. And so when you come to church, that's your safe space. That's where there are people who are just like you, who you don't have to try to explain yourself to. And so one funny phenomenon that I remember experiencing myself is that a lot of kids like me who, you know, growing up in school, didn't necessarily have as many Korean friends or similar friends in school then just go off to university and all their friends become the people who are just like them because there's sort of a, we all belong together and they gravitate towards campus ministries and go to their various churches, you know, Korean Americans being uh, one of the, you know, very highly churched population, 70, 75% have going to or having gone to church at some point in their lives. And so for me, I was, I was actually in that bubble for a very long time without really thinking critically about it. But once I stepped out of the bubble and viewed it from the outside, I began to realize, Hey, you know what? Like, these themes of wanting to belong, this idea of needing this space for ourselves uh, affects so much of how people like myself think about church, think about faith, think about God in ways that some people are aware of, but others aren't. And that then, you know, shape theology in a very significant way. And, and I'm actually very thankful that there have been a number of very good studies of people of, uh, you know, in, in the social sciences, looking at and studying, say, Korean American congregations to kind of help to bring out some of these points about them. And so, and so for me now, having been away from home for seven plus years, uh, it's also meant that as I become increasingly aware of this aspect of myself that I'm sort of now moving away from and becoming a bit more of a, a truly global citizen, I'm now finding that it becomes more difficult to really identify with anyone or any people in that full kind of a way where I'm able now to jump between groups a bit more easily, but the sense of full belonging is never really there. So Jackie and Jean, your discussions of migration and sort of identity and how this shapes theology is something that is also quite uh, interesting to me because having seen some of this myself and having ministered to um, say um, in diaspora Korean churches and in different parts of the world, it makes me now wonder, you know, how then do these things shape us? What are the, the things that we're thinking? How do we relate to God as a result of these kinds of things? So for me, this is a, these are aspects that are interesting. And I actually find that um, some themes that are present in um, say Asian American theology then become quite relevant for say a Singaporean context where some of these similar struggles, generational conflicts, theological influences are all sort of coming together in similar ways. 
And as we've been talking about in this podcast, us then being able to learn from and listen to each other helps us to grow in our own theological understandings and identity that we're trying to do in this podcast. So maybe that's a, a good place to wrap it up. So uh, do any of you guys have any other comments or, or, or thoughts or anything before we, we uh, close our discussion for today? I feel like we should sing like this is home truly or something, <laughs> but like we worded to like heavenly home <laughs> on, on, on Justin's note of belonging. I mean, that is really um, what I think is a really important thing that we, 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 we will want to develop in this podcast series. Yeah. So fostering belonging, fostering a home where we can all be one family of God together, right? Despite our various differences and, and highlighting across Asia, how we are all part of the same family, even though we are a bit different and our stories are different, making other people's stories our own and theirs, ours or, or whatever, right? That's our episode for today. Uh, thank you guys for listening. We are looking forward to more and better episodes for guests that we are going to have on in the future. We hope that you were encouraged by our discussions about ourselves and our theologies and our different theological approaches, and that you will uh, be looking forward to some of the, the other conversations that we'll be having in the future going forward. So again, thank you for your attention and see you guys the next time. This has been Mosaic, a podcast by Singapore Bible College. Special thanks to Hilary Lim and Micah Singapore for giving us permission to use their music for our show. We would love to hear any feedback, suggestions, or comments that you might have, especially for future episodes. So feel free to contact us through our website at sbc.edu.sg. You can check out the website to discover more about our degree programs, events, and publications. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe, leave a rating, or tell a friend. Thanks for listening.